All right. So with that, we'll get started. Uh, this training is crisis intervention over the phone. And once again, my name is Jean Lemquist. I'm a licensed clinical social worker with the DMH UCLA Public Mental Health Partnership team. I am an implementation specialist and I came from direct practice in San Diego working in crisis houses. I know you call them crisis residential treatment programs up here and also residential services for those with severe and persistent mental illness. We thought that this training about crisis intervention was very applicable in the current climate, as I'm sure you all have seen an increase in mental health concerns with our clients, with our loved ones, or perhaps even ourselves struggling to adapt to this new reality. And I'm hopeful that this training will reinforce the practices you are already using to support your clients during this difficult time. So some learning objectives. The first being that we gain a greater understanding of the Robert Seven Stage Model for Crisis Intervention in the context of telehealth and COVID-19. There are many models for crisis intervention, and I think this one does a good job focusing on key skill sets that aid in providing person-centered care during a crisis. We also want to emphasize some evidence-based practices to supplement that seven-stage model and utilize during a crisis. And then lastly, we want to dedicate an ample amount of time, if you guys are open to it, to cultivate a space of shared learning to discuss application of the model in your current practice, um, mindful of protected health information and HIPAA, we're hoping that we can create some dynamic discourse. So let's start with a good old definition. What is a crisis? It's an acute disruption of psychological homeostasis in which one's usual coping mechanisms fail and there exists evidence of distress and functional impairment. So usually a crisis is an intensely stressful or traumatic or hazardous event, but two other conditions are also necessary. The individual has to perceive the event as a major disruption or upset, and the individual has to be unable to resolve this disruption by previously used coping skills which brings up the degree to which an event is experienced as a crisis depends on the person's perception. A crisis for one person may not be a crisis for another, and I think that's an important distinction for us to remember. I know with crisis, we often think of loss, loss of a relationship, loss of a job, loss of a loved one, all could be major causes of crisis. But with the current climate of COVID-19, crisis may look very similar or very different. So what does crisis look like right now? It's important to note that this is a disaster-related crisis and how that creates crisis not just for our clients, but for all of us in society that are going through this at the same time. There's greater isolation as a result of the pandemic. Socialization is very different. Perhaps routines need to be restructured or have been completely lost. For both clinicians and clients, resources are more limited. 
For me, libraries were such a safe haven for clients experiencing homelessness, a place to use the internet, a place to charge their phone that is now temporarily lost. And with this pandemic, there's an overall pervasive fear of illness or death that can cloud many people during this time. And that can exacerbate mental health concerns for anyone that we're working with. When I think of those that struggle with mental health and substance use, I think of the 12 steps saying idle time is the devil's playground. This time can also trigger lots of cravings or even potential relapse as a result of what's going on. For those with or without mental health concerns, there's a general feeling of uncertainty, a lack of control that we're all trying to grapple with. So I wanted to take a moment to try to start our chat up to see what crises are you seeing with clients currently. If you'd like to, please feel free to write them in the chat, being mindful that of PHI, of course, and that a crisis is an upset in the steady state and trying to think back to what was their steady state and how has COVID changed that at all. Sarah? saying severe limitation of resources is a major one for clients experiencing homelessness, increased isolation, unable to find places to sleep due to shelters, not accepting new participants because of the virus, unemployment, not being able to work and limited funds, isolation, limited ability to access public resources, connected with the loss of resources, limited ability to spend time with peers during the day, isolation, unemployment, fear of infection, Wow, so some themes there, for sure. Some more coming up, paranoia, fear of going out in public, not having access to resources like smartphones, unable to access previous resources. I really appreciate Jose talking about the client co-occurring with bipolar disorder and methamphetamine abuse and the relapses and suicide attempt and hospitalization. That's definitely such a struggle we're having right now. Uh, phones, distrustful of phones, yeah. It's definitely paranoia about phones. This isn't a good time for that, for sure. Thank you, Sarah. So we will definitely get into some potential hopeful resolutions with these crises. And thank you all so much for sharing. I really appreciate it. So I want to talk about crisis intervention and telehealth, as I know that that's a lot of what we're doing right now integrating crisis interventions into that practice. And even before the pandemic, telehealth for both physical and mental health was becoming more integrated into care. Research was finding that it was equally as beneficial and satisfying to patients as in-person visits. And even for some mental health assessments and treatments for a variety of conditions, there was no significant difference from in-person care. I know that that isn't necessarily the same with the pandemic, but I hope that it can give us some insight in that we can make this hopefully work for right now until we can get back to greater contact at the clinic and greater in-person groups or sessions. So I wanted to take a little time to show a YouTube clip from the New York Times that displays telehealth crisis responders within a suicide hotline after Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico in 2018. 
It models compassionate interventions and assessments for those going through a crisis, while also highlighting that many of the workers themselves were still struggling with their own crises caused by Hurricane Maria. Usted se quiere quitar la vida tomándose medicamentos. Pues usted sí vale, usted sí es importante. Lo material, ¿verdad? Lo podemos recuperar, pero la vida no la podemos recuperar para atrás. La vida hay que cuidarla. Y yo necesito ir bajando los niveles de ansiedad, ¿ok? Vamos a practicar. Usted va a inhalar suavemente por la nariz y va a exhalar por la boca. Lo va a hacer tres veces. A la cuenta de tres va a comenzar, ¿ok? Uno, dos y tres. Buen día. Le habla Sara Soto, manejadora de crisis. ¿Han tenido un plan de cómo hacerse daño? Es para hacer unas coordinaciones para una dama con ideas suicidas en el pueblo de San Juan. Hurricane Maria made landfall in Puerto Rico a little over three months ago. Meteorologists describe it like a buzzsaw that shaved off the top half of the island. When I got here to cover the aftermath, most politicians and journalists were focused on what you might expect. The basics, like food and water and infrastructure. Things were dire. The storm devastated an island that was already dealing with a 10-year economic recession, massive unemployment, and almost half of the population was living in poverty. But as I interviewed survivors of the hurricane and listened to their stories, I began to see another crisis, one that most people weren't talking about, a mental health crisis. People kept telling me that they couldn't sleep, they were depressed, they were having panic attacks. And the hospitals reported that emergency rooms were filling up with people having suicidal thoughts. So after I filed my first round of stories, I went back to Puerto Rico to visit the island's only suicide prevention hotline. It's called Linea Paz, and it's a good place to try to understand the scope of this mental health crisis. Buen dia. Every single suicidal phone call that goes to a hospital or to 911 is routed here. Buenos dias, Linea Paz. It's open 24-7, and 12 people work at a time. They're crammed into tiny cubicles answering phones. Mm -hmm. And lately, they've been busy. ¿Qué tipo de pensamientos has tenido? ¿Has pensado en lastimarte? ¿Has pensado en herir o herir a alguien? Cuando vino el huracán, Puerto Rico se quedó oscura, negrito. Este tipo de llamadas así es muy concurrente. De estar 40 días sin servicio eléctrico, no tengo nevera, no tengo comestible. Okay. Llegó un punto que ya simplemente se bloqueó y ya yo no quiero vivir. ¿Qué es lo que quieres, Ana? ¿Qué Ana quiere en este momento? ¿Qué? 
tú quieres volar y lo vas a hacer. Ana, ¿tú quieres que yo te active los servicios del 911? No sabemos qué está haciendo. Si escucho un viento, puedo pensar que está en un balcón. Has planificado lastimarte, Ana. Ana, vamos a activarte los servicios del 911. ¿No quieres que venga la ambulancia? Ok. ¿Qué, ¿Quién es tu persona de confianza? Sígueme hablando, Ana. No, no te me vayas hasta que ella llegue. Esa es parte del proceso. No te puedo soltar. Necesitamos que alguien llegue a la casa. Saber que después de una intervención eh, tenemos una persona estable y eso es una víctima menos. Buen día. Pero siempre uno tiene pues esa pequeña preocupación. ¿Qué será de ellos? Así que, que ese es el día a día. Ese es el día a día. Watching the responders work, you can see how hard it is for them to convince callers that things actually are going to get better soon. A lot of these people have gone more than a month without electricity and water, and in some cases, a roof over their heads. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the callers who are living this way. La mayoría del estado todavía no tiene luz como todo Puerto Rico. Tengo un personal que tuvo pérdida total. No es fácil estar sin los servicios básicos de agua y luz. We buy food on the street. We have water, but we, have, we don't have electricity to wash the clothes. Um, so we have to ask for help. Todavía nos falta muchísimo. Muchísimo porque no lo puedo negar. Pero por lo menos podemos llegar a nuestro trabajo ya. No tenía planta. No. Me, me, me la enviaron desde Orlando y me llegó el, el viernes y domingo me llegó la luz. Se tardó un mes en llegar. Bendito. Pero... Yo si no tuviera plática, no la estuviéramos viendo negra. Porque allí no va a haber luz. No tenemos ni esperanza. No, ¿verdad? No, no somos ni ilusión. Research has shown that the psychological impact of natural disasters can be permanent for some people. Studies in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina and in Haiti after the 2010 earthquake showed that both moderate and severe mental illnesses became more common after those disasters. And in Puerto Rico, the top mental health official told me that they're already seeing signs of a severe mental health crisis. So what's happening now could just be the beginning. This small group of counselors who are already working extra hours could be facing even more phone calls in the coming months. The day before I visited the call center, there was a massive rainstorm. 
que habías cortado. Apliques un poco de presión en lo que llega a la ambulancia. The next day, the calls spiked because people were having flashbacks to Maria. Okay, que los frascos busque los frascos de pastillas, verdad, y se los pida para que entonces usted los pueda tener en su poder. Como una una femina de 19 años, este, que estaba en su cuarto cortándose. Estaba un poquito ansiosa, este, porque estaba este lloviendo en su residencia y pues estaba pues reviviendo la experiencia que tuvo con el huracán. Lo primero que van a pensar es, viene el huracán, me va a pasar lo mismo, voy a perder, eh, voy a morir, me va a pasar esto, me va a pasar lo otro. Experts say the most important step to overcoming trauma is going back to routine. Sí. But the recovery in Puerto Rico has been so slow, that's been almost impossible here. Y uno se siente sofocado porque sigue entonces reviviendo esas experiencias. A lot of people still haven't gone back to work. They haven't gone back to school. They're not back in their homes. La primera pregunta, ¿cómo yo voy a volver a la normalidad? Al tú descubrir hoy que el seguro no te cubre los daños de tu hogar, es por eso que estás teniendo estos pensamientos. And it's not clear when or how things are going to change. A veces uno no tiene palabras porque son como uno le va a decir a una persona, cógelo con calma cuando no tiene dónde dormir. El, el suicidio no es una opción en la vida de ningún ser humano. The responder's job is to convince people not to do anything drastic uh -huh. because this is going to pass. Things are going to improve. But no one really knows if that's true. La situación de no tener luz en tu casa, la situación de estar oscura, de no tener recursos, tú es pasajero. Tenemos que darnos este, nosotros mismos refuerzos positivos y saber que todo va a mejorar. Hola, buen día. Pero de la línea Paz es el 1-800. So I just thought that clip was really great at illustrating some very useful interventions in crisis while also acknowledging how difficult it is to try to remedy crisis and crises that are so ongoing, which I, I think is applicable to right now in the same scenario with the pandemic. It is an ongoing situation that is ever evolving and our practices are continuously adapting. And it is a challenge to stay positive and to stay hopeful, but I know that you are all doing your very best, and I hope that you found that clip um, a little useful. So with that in mind, what are some of the differences between in-person and over the phone that you have been experiencing in telehealth with your clients? And how have you been adjusting to these differences? I see Andrea or Andrea uh, not being able to see the client's affect or to engage. Yeah, loss of the nuance of body language, no body language. So just not being able to really get a feel for uh, how a person is feeling and how they're acting. Uh, pitch and tone, um, harder to connect over the phone. Sometimes you don't realize when someone's crying right away. Yeah, absolutely. 
personal connection's been lost, not knowing quite what they look like and vice versa, rushing to get off the phone, not being able to see their faces or body language, difficulty of reading response, difficult keeping them on the phone for a long time, um, people just not wanting to talk over the phone. I uh, can't tell if it's slurred speech due to substance use or poor cell connection. That's interesting, Karina. Um, not knowing how much to push, distractions from surroundings, and some don't have a private room or area to go into to have the call. Um, some, some people feel less comfortable sharing information, can't smell uh, alcohol or marijuana on an individual to tell if they've been using. Thank you all so much for sharing. I really appreciate all of your insights into this. So we are going to get into some hopeful, useful tips and skills to make those situations a little easier. And we're going to start by introducing the Robert seven stage model. Um, it's kind of a background that we can use for helping clients. It starts from the bottom up, uh, being that we plan and conduct a crisis and biopsychosocial assessment establish rapport and a collaborative relationship, identify dimensions of the presenting problem, exploring feelings and emotions, trying to generate and explore alternatives, developing an action plan, and finally, a follow-up plan and agreement. Now, we're not going to explore them as a rigid step-by-step -step process today, as many of these can be done concurrently, we're going to frame it as a series of guideposts to facilitate short-term goal attainment. And I think it's important before we right off the bat start assessing for safety in a crisis that we begin with rapport building. People in crisis have a universal need to be heard. They all have their own unique story to tell. Listed here are a few strategies to help facilitate that collaborative relationship to hopefully help begin the process of resolution within the crisis. It's important that when we're doing this, we're staying in the present moment with the clients as we do. We do not really at any point want to delve back into past traumas. We want to focus on how they are feeling right now in this moment to help us understand the presenting problem that has caused the crisis. One of the most important skills to practice while establishing rapport is to accept silence. This can be very difficult to do when someone is going through a crisis, but our goal in this stage is that we are listening more than we are talking. We are meeting them where they are at, asking questions that hopefully conjure more than one word answers. Our goal is to reflect the responses so that we can conceptualize together what precipitated the crisis and what the crisis is currently causing them to feel or even act upon. I want to highlight that when I say express empathy, I'm very focused on destigmatization. Many people have trouble asking for help, um, myself included, let alone with their mental health. And it takes guts and courage to reach out for support. And if possible or applicable, we want to acknowledge the risk they took in reaching out. Perhaps we're thinking about the potential fear of rejection that might be going through their mind, of not being heard, of not being understood, that it could even make things worse. And sometimes we're just trying to remedy those misconceptions. 
We want to validate the natural occurrence of intense emotions that are likely arising from a crisis. I think it's important to note that sometimes crisis may not be rooted in reality. We'll go into that later on when we talk about psychosis, but it's important that even in those scenarios, we can still validate the intensity of their emotions and empathize with that experience. When we think of reflective statements, some examples can start with, it sounds like, or it seems as if, maybe I get a sense that, or if there are conflicting statements, you can say something like, help me understand. On the one hand, you state this, but on the other hand, you state that. The goal being that we're trying to have these open-ended questions to understand the depth of the issues at hand and in turn build their own insight into what they're going through. And all of these skills really encompass active listening, which is really the goal here. I know that it is very different to build rapport over the phone than in person, and I appreciate all your comments about the difficulties and differences with those two modalities. Um, we can't assess their nonverbal cues like eye contact, facial expression, or body posture. We solely have their speech. For both in-person and remote crisis intervention, research definitely supports going at their pace. One study even found that people usually speak slower in a crisis, but I know from experience working at crisis houses and residential that that's not always the case and sometimes people can present as very agitated. And in those scenarios, we don't want to <laughs> necessarily mirror that agitation. We want to be that calming presence. In assessing the environment, we're thinking of safety concerns. The client could be at home with an abusive partner. We want to make sure we ask, are you in a place or location that may not be safe for you to answer questions for fear of being overheard? If the answer is yes, that they aren't in a safe place, we want to develop a code word. We want to resort to just yes or no questions to try to get through understanding the crisis at hand more swiftly. For procedure for call lost, I know that we hopefully have an emergency contact for most of our clients, but if we don't, a location, maybe even some cross streets, if we don't have an address, um, another phone number we can try to reach them at, just something so we have a backup of a welfare check that can be facilitated if needed. And asking clarifying questions, very similar to those reflective statements we just talked about. I just think it's very useful to do them more on the phone um, because that's, that's all we have is just the speech. So I think asking more clarifying questions like, am I hearing you right when you're saying you feel lost after your girlfriend left today? Just asking more and more questions but still giving them ample time to talk is very useful. And as always, we are trying to emphasize their personal choice and a sense of control during these interactions. We want them to lead the conversation unless they're feeling too overwhelmed to respond or to direct the conversation. They have a choice in how much they wish to divulge and we have to respect and acknowledge that 
outside of the parameters of safety concerns. All right. So I know it's quite a leap to go from talking about rapport and telehealth to suicide assessment, but I think it's really important in, in a disaster-related crisis uh, to address this, especially with COVID-19. It presents a level of crisis that is unprecedented since the 1918 influenza epidemic in the United States um, with staggering losses that can lead to suicide. The Roberts model cites a crisis and biopsychosocial assessment as a necessary step alongside rapport building. And the Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale, as I'm sure you guys have used it in your practice, I know it's part of DMH's tools to assess for level of risk regarding suicidality that often lead us to consider the need for a higher level level of care to ensure our client's safety. On this slide is an example of a reduced version for assessing safety after last contact with a client, which could be utilized over the phone. Now, each clinician has their own way of assessing for suicidality, but I think there are some important things to consider from this tool. The first being that a suicidal crisis is characterized not simply just by having suicidal thoughts, but by the associated feelings of hopelessness and helplessness to cope. Because I know when I hear, oh, they're having suicidal thoughts, I jump to my safety concerns. I jump to, I need to call my supervisor, but I first really need to check in about the emotions behind those thoughts as well to determine the level of intent, to determine the depth of the suicidal crisis. I also want to touch on preparatory acts, which are those behaviors that occur in preparation for a suicide attempt. When I think of assessing for suicide, it's not my first question I jump to, but I do think it's very important to kind of keep track of these behaviors if we start to notice any shifts in their activities in their baseline. We're not going to know over the phone if they're necessarily stockpiling pills, but or writing a suicide note, but something that I do think I have been able to assess for in the past over the phone is giving away valuables. I had a client when I worked in residential services that discharged successfully, and we had an alumni case management program, and he was part of that, so we would check in on him, and he recently been hospitalized for um, suicidality alongside uh, relapse on alcohol and he was pretty upset with us because he did not like going to the hospital and so he began to not be willing to assess for suicidal thoughts not responsive to are you having any thoughts of wanting to go on not responsive to frankly any creative other ways we tried to ask those questions so instead we tried to focus on other ways of seeing if his depression was worsening now for him he had SSI, and I know, as a lot of you all know, there's not a lot of money in SSI. So after rent, he would painstakingly save up for anything military clothing-esque. So like steel-toed military boots, military camo jacket, military backpack. And one day on the phone, I asked him if he was rocking his camo jacket, trying to make small talk. And he said he had sold it. 
And I knew that he had saved up for this. And this signified to me that his depression was worsening and that I needed to take it very seriously. So from then on, that gave us a way to continue to assess for those kind of preparatory behaviors. They're not outrightly indicative that he's going to take his own life, but it led us to ask more and more about his routine, about his valuables, about things we wouldn't necessarily immediately ask in a suicidal you know, assessment. So we'd ask, hey, how did that 12-step meeting go today? Did you talk to anyone after did you still go on your walk to the beach? We're trying to track any changes in behavior when we can't outrightly check, um, track the thoughts of suicide that we usually typically ask about. My goal in that little aside is that not everyone is going to be receptive to these tools like the CSSRS. So I want to highlight how we can use it as a frame to guide our questions, but apply them in more creative ways when we need to. So I want to use it for some decision-making together. Um, so here's this little case about Greg. Greg has contacted you two days before your vacation and is audibly hyperventilating. He opened his eyes this morning and felt a sense of impending dread after reading that 2,909 people died on May 1st from COVID-19. He feels trapped. He imagines how much better it would be to not feel as if the world was endlessly crushing him. He ingested eight antidepressants to try to feel better quickly and states that he does not want to die. So for next steps, I think we would all agree we want to utilize emergency services to make sure he is physically safe and emotionally safe. But I want to focus more on classification within the CSSRS. According to one study, ingesting eight antidepressants days before the clinician's vacation, albeit non-pandemic times, was labeled as a suicide attempt, a quote-unquote suicide gesture, and quote-unquote manipulative self-harm behavior. And I bring this up because there has been criticisms of miscategorizations or not being able to categorize effectively for all scenarios within the CSSRS. Regardless of that, suicidal gestures and manipulative self-harm behaviors are not acceptable classifications that even fit within that scale. So I think it's important to remember that every self-harm act greatly increases the risk of death by suicide. And I know that self-harm is a big part of assessment for suicidality, but I want to reference that even in crisis, non-suicidal self-injury can be a big part as well. And that refers to self-injurious behavior with the intent of producing injury, but with no suicidal intent. Intentions motivating non-suicidal self-injury are varied, but include effective regulation, trying to communicate distress and expressions of aggression. In addition, it could be avoidance or even trying to mobilize interpersonal attention. I bring this up because it encourages us to remember what is the motivation or purpose of this behavior. Yes, sometimes it can be interpreted as manipulation, but if we take the time to dive deeper, it usually displays an unmet need that is driving the motivation behind the self-injurious behavior. 
I see we have a question on this section before you move on to biopsychosocial assessment. Um, what if the client in crisis does not want to share his location or to provide information of an emergency contact person? A tough question. That is a tough question. I guess I would say if we know the general area where the client is or a home address, I would still try to do a welfare welfare check there. We would have clients that would leave the crisis house against medical advice. And so we would try to have a welfare check to their last known address. And I would also deep dive into um, your online system. We would all always have demographic forms and some of the older ones would have different emergency contacts. So we would try a couple different ones. If they had been in the mental health system for a little bit of time, we'd try to contact different people listed there. I know that probably doesn't resolve a lot of that, but I'm going to think more on that. Always <laughs> asking a follow-up question about transient clients uh, with no emergency contacts, uh, how to how to conduct a welfare check uh, in those situations with those clients. Yeah. Um, so definitely for transient clients, I would know the general area they would hang out on. And in pre-COVID times, I could go to those areas and, and look for them and, and try to complete a welfare check. Um, and even with some relationship building with the local police department, I'm from San, San Diego, so the Oceanside Police Department and I were quite close. <laughs> they could often help me facilitate that if I knew the general area they were in. So it's it's hard because in the moment it might not always be possible, but to slowly learn like their hangouts of where they go to, even while transient is a good place to start. Um, though I know that the police department may not always be receptive to following up on general locations in a big met metropolitan area like Los Angeles. I see David mentions uh, the suggestion of paying attention to any background noises that might provide clues to where an individual may be. Thank you guys for the questions. I, I know that these are unprecedented times and you guys are doing such great work with the resources you have. So planning and conducting a biopsychosocial assessment. So as clinicians, if we see that our client is at a moderate or high risk, according to this scale, we may feel the immediate need to initiate a 5150, or we may directly defy the scale, saying that we know the client better and that we know they won't act upon the thoughts. They told us so. But both can be wrong. Both can have unforeseen negative consequences. The point being that neither takes precedent. A tool is only a tool. A clinician is always needed to do the work effectively. The CSSRS is an element of our decision-making process, not the be-all end-all. Our overall assessment is created through perhaps initially a tool, but also self-report, the client's history, our clinical judgment, and hopefully team consultation all make up the process for decision-making. So these are some overall tips to use when conducting a safety assessment and other facets of your assessment outside of safety. I know that clinical jargon is especially important for documentation, but when speaking to a client in crisis, it's important to remember to speak to them how you would wanna be spoken to if you were going through a crisis. What have you needed or wanted during a crisis? 
We want to utilize language that resonates with their current experience. Labeling emotions over scaling them. If I would ask a client how they woke up feeling today at the crisis house and they told me a six, it was often indicative that they had been in the mental health system for quite some time and were used to Likert scales at the hospital, at the IMD, what have you, just asking them a number of how they're feeling. And it reminded me to emphasize even more description in their emotions, putting words to how they're feeling, which in turn helps clients build insight into what is going on with them when they are very overwhelmed with so many emotions and thoughts. And sometimes they can't describe it in words. So we can ask, how does it feel in your body? Is it heavy? In what part? When you think about your depression, what does it look like in your mind? All of this leading to more dialogue and more understanding. And don't hesitate to ask for help. I know that seems basic, but I know that even now we, we need to support each other so much. It can mean case consultation with a coworker. As you saw in the video from Puerto Rico, they had a fellow employee contacting Ana's daughter to go check on her while Ana was still on the phone with another worker. They did this instead of activating 911 services, which also emphasized the least invasive intervention. And I know this isn't always possible. In crisis houses, we would have people call in for a bed that were actively suicidal, and I didn't have an emergency contact for them to reach. Luckily, we could signal a team member to call for a welfare check if we had an address or if we had a location while I kept the caller on the line. And they could still end up in our crisis house, but in that moment, we had to try to ensure their safety. The same can be done during these times, though I know there's a lot more adaptation needed. Delegating remotely among staff members is a challenge within itself. I know, luckily or unluckily, most of you have a work phone and a personal phone, so hopefully you can use both on the same time if you need to mobilize 911 services for a client. Um, in residential services, we use Star Trek names. So when I was on call, and my name's Jean Lundquist, so Star Trek would be the first three letters of the last name and the first two of the first name, so Lun J. So if someone texted me, Lun J has a suicidal crisis with a plan to hang herself, I would know to mobilize 911, and I would know who they were talking about and could access on my work computer more identifying information to relay to 911 services. I know it's still difficult and challenging to do that in real time, but I think it's very important that we have a plan for that because I know that that will still happen and maybe happen even more often during these times. I thought it would be also beneficial to talk about some assessment questions for psychosis and mania. Um, questions to ask yourself while you're doing the assessment and try to relay back to the person. In a psychotic crisis, we're looking for a level of disorganization. Are they pausing a lot? Are they not as responsive to our questions? This could be indicative of responding to internal stimuli. It's easier to pick up on paranoia. They could become defensive or suspicious of our questions. That's why building that rapport and continuing to build it is so important. We can reflect that you understand why they may feel uncomfortable or wary of 
sharing things with you and that they only need to share as much as they would like and you're here to provide support in whatever way is possible right now. I'm trying to reinforce trust in those moments. Also asking, do you follow their train of thought? Does it make sense? Is it based in reality? For mania, it's important to determine any level of grandiosity. Do they have big plans? What is their speech like? Rapid or elevated? Mania can also manifest in agitation, which can be a noticeable shift in mood to be cognizant of during the assessment. For any client, manic or not, we want to assess for sleeping patterns because a lack of sleep presents an increase in most mental health concerns. So overall, we're trying to determine the focus of their thoughts and what they want to tell us about. So these are the initial four steps of the Robert Seven stage model, all essential, all working in tandem with one another, likely at the same time. We need rapport to assess effectively. While we are assessing, we are identifying the presenting problem, exploring emotions, and continuing to build the collaborative relationship of trust needed to help remedy the crisis. So to focus on identification of the presenting problem, I have a little case for us to think about, and hopefully you guys can type in some responses. So Karen has contacted you in a distressed state, stating that she believes everyone is watching her and speaking about her when she went to the grocery store today. Karen wore a mask to the grocery store and doesn't understand why people are treating her like this. Karen has contacted her mother for support. But as seems to be the normal response to Karen, her mother has put down the phone and refuses to help. So what do we work on first with Karen? Please feel free to type in your responses if you'd like. We're trying to think of how do we prioritize the problems. We want to know what the quote unquote last straw was. But we also want to understand how these events escalated into a crisis, which helps us reflect their ability or attempt to cope with the crisis as it built. While people are thinking and typing out their comments, we had a couple, Salvador had asked, if you have to have experience to do the scale, one of our colleagues, Lisa, answered in a wonderful, helpful way um, that there, there are resources online to teach you how to use the scale the Columbia scale. Um, and she also recommended DD Hirsch's Suicide Prevention Center for more training or phone consultation. Um, Daniel had asked if we are mandated reporters. It's hard, or made the comment, if we are mandated reporters, it's harder to be less invasive if someone states that they have a plan, right? All right, so for Karen, some things I think about um, is how she's feeling about her mother not picking up the phone. Um, I might assume she's feeling unsafe after going to the grocery store, but before I ask that clarifying question, I want to see how she describes her feelings. How did she feel when she woke up today before she went out to the grocery store? Were there any other precipitants to this crisis that we can explore with her? All right. When we have identified the presenting problem, we are naturally exploring feelings and emotions regarding the issue at hand. 
That exploration is done with the skill set of rapport building we talked about earlier, from active listening to expression of empathy. But it also requires a level of trust between two people, often from different cultures. And that quick development of rapport and trust from people of different cultures requires us as clinicians to communicate a demeanor that one is knowledgeable about and accepting of cultural differences. So I just wanted to take a brief moment to talk about cultural considerations. I, as a white woman, am not the person to lead any sort of full training on cultural considerations, but I just wanted to emphasize being mindful of culture when we're talking about crisis intervention and crisis resolution. As clinicians, we have to be aware of our own beliefs. We have to be aware of potential stereotypes that we may hold and that the client may hold and be sensitive to beliefs, attitudes, feelings, and conscious of their influence. And even with a developed awareness of our reactions, we have to continuously educate ourselves about our client's cultural identity, especially in crisis situations. Now, if we look at this list um, listed on the slide, it has supposed opposites with on the left being Western values and on the right being Eastern values. So individualism versus collectivism, mastery versus harmony, emotional expression versus restraint, and equality versus hierarchy. Within our diverse populations in the West, we can see that many different cultures here identify with both Eastern and Western values. And I bring this up to reinforce that each client will vary in their relationship to their identified culture and therefore must be viewed as culturally unique. In the crisis houses, as part of our county assessment, we had a whole section where we had to talk about the cultural impact on their mental health. And that's not an easy thing to dive into, but it was a really good skill to try to learn because culture was not just based on ethnicity, it could be also employment, politics, hobbies, where they were born, their family, their relationships. And to ask about the impact that their culture had on their mental health, we would start from inquiring about what was important to their sense of self, to their overall sense of identity. The goal being that we ask questions to understand their perspective and how that perspective has or has not influenced their current crisis. So all of this leading to these first four steps, we're trying to formulate a meaning of the crisis, a deeper understanding identifying a narrative, if any, around the subjective meaning of their crisis. It could be a loss of identity, a loss of purpose, a loss of stability because someone was key for them that's no longer there in the same way because of social distancing. So trying to learn what this loss means to them. So the next step is to generate and explore alternatives. And this, a lot of these type of questions stem from solution-focused therapy. Solution-focused therapy talks about three main things. One, that every client is unique. Two, that clients have inherent strengths and resources to help themselves. And three, 
As we all know that change is constant and inevitable and small changes can lead to big changes later on. So these are different kinds of questions we can use with the clients to help determine some solutions to their crisis or some bettering in their crisis. Although I may not use scaling questions often as I touched on, I don't use the Likert scale that much, but scaling questions, if we're talking about crisis intervention, they're useful because a crisis isn't usually resolved in one singular session. So you can ask on a scale of one to 10, with 10 representing the best it can be, and one the worst, where would you say you are at today? And if they say, you know, I'm at um, a four, you can say why a four and not a five. Another example is presupposing questions. And that really means we're assuming positive changes. This can include questions like what's different or better since the last time I spoke with you. So we're gonna go into those a little more. Here we have coping questions and exception questions. Finding exceptions to problems encourages clients to see that they have been able to cope in the past and that they can imagine a future where there is some resolution. When was the last time that you felt you had a better day? What was it about that day that made it a better day? And what must happen to have more better days? Coping questions, I know we're very familiar with asking how people are coping. I think the thing to note here is that we're trying to celebrate the small wins. We're trying to praise their ability to manage how they have thus far and continuing to help them build those skills. Now the miracle dream question is very popular in solution focused therapy, but it's not for everyone and it's not for every type of crisis. If it's clear what the miracle would be, I would be employed. I would be with my significant other. Someone would be alive again. It's not the best tactic to use. This is supposed to be utilized for situations like with Karen that could be a useful tactic to help her understand what a solution may look like. If it's more focused on the interaction at the grocery store or if it has more to do with her mother being there for her. So we're asking these questions step-by-step, step, slowly, with pauses in between. So suppose tonight, while asleep, you have a dream. In the dream, you discover the answers and resources you need to solve the problem. When you wake up tomorrow, you may or may not remember your dream, but you know you are different. How will you know that you discovered or developed the skills and resources necessary to solve your problem? And what will be the first small bit of evidence that you did this? After asking the dream question, it's important to ask follow-up questions that facilitate what the transformation would look like. We want to establish multiple indicators of change to help clients develop a clearer vision of their desired future. And when possible, tying it into relationships with others. So some questions you could ask in, about relationships with others. What will be the first thing people notice that will tell them a miracle has happened? How will people respond differently to you after this miracle? And how will you respond differently to them? 
So with this hopeful generation of potential solutions, we want to develop an action plan. The sentiment being, if it works, do more of it. If it doesn't work, don't do it again. Do something else. Crisis can be a tedious process that is not swiftly resolved. We want to develop an action plan that acknowledges that and breaks it down to get through moment by moment. Getting up and taking care of your hygiene, making sure you ate today is great at the start. We want to, once again, celebrate the small wins. Our role is really to facilitate greater coping each and every day. We want to acknowledge their pain, but we don't want to wallow. We don't want to get stuck. So when I think of an action plan for crisis, safety plans are at the forefront. They are the bread and butter of public mental health. <laughs> the goal is that when using this, we're trying to make it as dynamic as possible. They now have safety planning applications that you can download on phones for our younger clients that are more tech savvy. Um, we used to laminate them for clients that could put them in their wallet or carry them in their pocket and it in itself could be a grounding object. I'm not going to go over the safety plan in extreme detail, but I will list out the components. If you have any questions about a component, please write them in the chat. We want to recognize warning signs. For me, if I lose too much sleep, my mental health is impacted. Um, during this section, we're asking about how they know their mental health is starting to suffer, which in turn builds insight. Now, identifying coping skills, these may be external or internal in, in nature. Social contacts and settings right now are very different but hopefully we can help to establish virtual socialization or get on those phone meetings or even maybe just connecting to get another phone if they don't feel safe with the phone that they're using. I know we know how to ask what people they can contact for help directly and who they can call from their team of support or agencies for support if their people aren't available and ensuring that the environment is safe, making sure that sharp objects are removed, making sure that if our clients have a history of overdose, that perhaps they are, their medication refills are not large in quantity if we have concerns about that and can, can consult their psychiatrist. I wanted to talk about safety plans because in the crisis houses and even in residential services, we got a lot of resistance to them because they were often required at the start of a hospitalization, at the start of admission to a crisis house, at the start of case management. People could come to us with multiple safety plans already be, being completed. So they wouldn't want another safety plan. They would be very frustrated. And this was an opportunity for us to learn and to ask what had worked in the past with their previous safety plans asking them what did those plans include? Was anything on there helpful? What wasn't helpful? Did you ever call anyone on this list? How did that go? What got in the way of you using a safety plan? And I also want to note that safety plans may look different. I had a client with traits of borderline personality disorder that we worked on formulating her own typed up quote unquote crisis plan. It went over how she would ask for help from specific people, 
what DBT skills she would try to use in the moment, usually self-soothing statements and physical self-soothing of grounding and breath work. And if that all didn't work, she would call her mental health support team. And if that did not work, she would call emergency services. And I say all this to note that adaptation is the key to any sort of successful safety plan, because I know that these are going to be part of anyone's mental health treatment, and that I want our clients to use them to the best of their ability. So a safety plan presents us with opportunities to teach clients new skills. If I had a client that could not detail any coping skills to use when warning signs emerged, that was an opportunity for skill building. And distress tolerance skills were essential for us in the crisis houses. They helped create short-term relief from painful situations like crisis and helped deter impulsive actions. Pain is going to happen. It's the cost of living any life is that we will all have crisis and we will all have losses. And this current pandemic affects us all on a spectrum. Lots of us are living on creating short-term relief from painful situations that this crisis has formed. We can accept this current reality, but we don't have to approve of it. I don't approve of all of this isolation, but it's still there. I accept that. I work to create social connection within my reality. And what I really like about distress tolerance skills is that they overlap with mindfulness, they overlap with acceptance and commitment therapy, with concepts like cognitive diffusion, where we notice our thoughts rather than being caught up in thoughts, or we try to let thoughts come and go rather than holding on to them. So distress tolerance skills usually start with external skill building. I would do the exercise with them when I needed some buy-in to see that this could help in the moment. And even virtually, I would recommend this. <laughs> if they weren't open to tip skills, I would do a yoga pose with them. Mountain pose is where you have your feet flat on the floor and you're standing and you're reaching out and imagining you're a great big mountain and trying to ground yourself. If someone was anxious, we would walk laps around the building. If someone was angry, we would do push-ups together. So some people take a long time to get to building internal coping skills, and it's okay to start with external. There's something truly magical about cold water, tipping the temperature. It can really help clients get back to a place where they can listen to the conversation at hand because they may be so overwhelmed. They need this little shock to their system that cold water can provide to get back to the present moment, to be able to continue the conversation. And then paced breathing. Sometimes clients will want to rock back and forth as they're breathing quickly to calm themselves down. Muscle relaxation, I would not do that at the same time. Separate <laughs> interventions, but tensing their arm and releasing, tensing their leg and releasing. You don't have to go through every muscle of the body. I wouldn't want to do that in crisis, but it's about just grounding themselves to the present moment, realizing that they can get through this. And if we can ground them with those external coping skills, we want to start building on internal coping skills. I need to stop, take a step back, observe. Am I being mindful of my responses? Is my response warranted? 
Will it be okay if I react differently? This stop skill can help us from continuously elevating back into crisis mode, even when the crisis is not resolved, which I know we are finding more and more during these current times. So I wanted to pause and take a moment to see if there are any questions or comments about these last few slides. Going back a little bit, Jean, there was a question about uh, the miracle question. Um, Daniel asks, is there a miracle, uh, risk miracle questions can generate false hopes that a miracle will happen? And Lisa also asked if you could say a few more words about the point of the miracle question. Is the idea to get the person to focus on exactly what it would look like if their problem was solved so they can focus on mapping out the change they're looking for and not so much the idea of a miracle? So. Yeah, I, I don't think it's so much focused on the idea of the miracle, but trying to help them map out the change, really. And I think if, if it's with a client that isn't rooted in reality, I wouldn't use it with them. So when I believe Daniel is talking about false hope, if it's something that's not going to help them get through the crisis and maybe lead to grandiosity or something like that, I would, I would not use it. But it's, if it's something that can help clarify what the change would look like, if it's not clear to them, if it's not clear to us what it's going to take to help them feel better, Better, this might be a tool for that. But if we know that it might do more harm than good, I, I wouldn't use it. We don't want to create false hope. We want to create like logical change. And for some people, they just need to visualize what that would be. Cool. Um, looks like Christian, you had asked about an effective safety plan in Spanish. Um, David pulled something from the internet to, to share um, a version that is in English and Spanish. If you have anything to add on that, Jean, uh, go for it. And then it looks like Andrea or Andrea has a question um, about what, to, what about a crisis where there's no suicidal or homicidal ideation, but the client is upset, yelling, et cetera. So different, different type of crisis, maybe. And I wonder if some of your, the last few slides apply to those, that situation. Yeah, definitely. Um, we had a lot of that in our crisis houses where um, I'm sure a lot of you have worked with people that have traits of personality disorders and a lot of them had very little skill in regulating their emotions. And so that was really the focus was just trying to work through that agitation, work through that reactivity, because it often felt like anything could create a crisis for them. So I, I can recall a client that I would have say, you know, a few words to, and then she went outside and started slamming chairs on the ground. And I, <laughs> I was like, but everything was fine just a moment ago in my mind. But it's really that I have to explore with them what happened right before she decided to throw that chair, what increased that level of agitation, because I do find more so than I have had suicidal or homicidal crises, the ones that are the most ongoing, the most continuous is the agitation, the inability to cope with overwhelming emotions. And it's, it's very tedious to try to build that insight because not every client is going to want to journal and write out um, what happened right before, what happened after, what can I do differently? And it takes a lot of effort on our part to be still with them and talk it through when we can so that they can develop this insight and hopefully some alternative coping skills because the impulses that we can have at baseline are usually not 
the most healthy for a lot of our clients, unfortunately. Marlissa said, I had a client that was having a panic attack. I helped him do visual imagery and breathing exercises to slow heart rate. So important, so useful right now. Yeah. yeah, that was me asking that question. Um, <laughs> I really love seeing the example in the video you showed earlier. Um, and I can think of times when I did more sort of crisis line work in the past, what that was like and how, how you, you know, you really want to connect with the person you're speaking to and find what connects to them most resonantly, most genuinely. Um, and looking at your slide, Jean, on like uh, tipping and like how... How do you suggest that? Um, how do you explain that? You know, what what are the things you can do to get someone's buy-in to uh, do that breathing or go to the sink? Yeah, definitely. I think I think because I was always now we can't virtually necessarily, but because I was like willing to do it with them, I was like, I'll show you. Let's do it together. I think this may be able to help you. Or just acknowledging like, I understand that you are feeling so much pain right now. And I just want to try something to help it diminish just a little bit. I can't imagine how painful this situation is for you. And I just want to help you try to get through this next moment. And that's what I would focus on is just getting through moment by moment and that I was kind of an ally and a partner to help facilitate getting through that moment. But that, that I... I could not understand what they were going through. I was just trying to support them. Like that was their experience. I just want to help them get through it. I want to help them get back to the person that they know they can be because their life wasn't always a crisis. Right. The way you frame that sounds really empowering. That's great. Um, some other comments here. After Marlissa, David mentions using 54321. I love the 54321. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I, I wonder if everyone knows what that is. Uh, guided imagery is also helpful. Um, that's yeah. what Jean says, different Jean. Um, oh. Lisa loves the focus on body sensations through distress tolerance techniques like the mountain pose, uh, right? Using cold water. Um, Aureen thinks the stop skill is very useful. She's learning that from meditation via Headspace, which is oh, great for everyone living in LA County through the end of the year right now. Yeah. Um, five, four, three, two, one is five things you can see in your surroundings. And it's a great tool to use over the phone. Um, four things you can feel, three things you can hear, two things you can smell, and one thing you can taste. So I should probably, <laughs> I had that on my last presentation, but if, um, so I didn't include it there, but it's like my go-to to help soothe and calm people in their immediate setting when they're very overwhelmed. Um, the 54321 is extremely useful. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan. Yeah, let's see if uh, Jacqueline's asking, can someone type out the 54321 so I can write it down, please? I wonder uh, we can do a, myself can do, or someone else on our team can do a quick hunt for that uh, written out on the internet somewhere so it's easier. Daniel notes that sometimes deep breathing does not help with panic attacks. Very true. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, it's not gonna work for everyone 100%. Um, I often found that pace breathing for me, for those that were going through panic, it was more about rapidly breathing deeply that was more helpful than like slow, deep breaths. 
Um, like it almost, it seems maybe silly as I do it, but it was very useful. And also cold water for panic was even more useful than that um, because it really helped the temperature regulate their body at some other level. I'm, I'm not a science person, but it was extremely helpful in those scenarios. Cause you're right. Deep breathing does not work for everyone. So it's really about finding out what works for them, perhaps trying to visualize a safe place or visualize a peaceful place for them in that moment that they can try to go to. And we can describe and visualize as people have been talking about to kind of calm and bring them back to the moment is something else that was useful during scenarios of panic. Um, Morgan also comments about, um, yeah, right. It's so different for everyone. What, what grounds one person is a trigger for another. You mentioned taste can be triggering for people with eating disorders and one treatment center, you know, of switch that out with saying one positive affirmation or intention that really relates back to Jean, what you were talking about, the individualization of safety plans and crisis plans. So, so critical and so crucial and the need for creativity is really there. Yeah, definitely. And especially with crisis, like in affirmations to come up with them, like sometimes with clients with paranoia, we would work just on the affirmation reminding I am safe here. There's someone I can talk to here if they were in the crisis house. I know that can't be right now, but we can come up with ones that help them feel safe in the moment um, and help them get through the day when they're feeling overwhelmed. So affirmations are extremely useful to ground and to remind themselves that they're safe. There's lots of different skills that can help people get through a crisis. Um, I think each person is different. Like we talked about, some may not work for others, uh, which is just another opportunity to learn more skills to see what can help a person in that moment. Uh, most crises aren't resolved in a day as we touched on. An average length of stay in our crisis house was seven to nine days, but really for some people it took two weeks or more to get back to a place where they had the confidence to continue going forward to try to return to their life. Um, and I know that right now it's probably even longer than that because there are more and more different and unique sorts of crises happening right now. The last stage when we talk about crisis intervention is a follow-up plan and agreement. Hopefully we have that safety plan. Hopefully we are continuing to adapt that action plan for how to get through the next day, the next week. We wanna establish parameters for how we will know the crisis is improving. And right now there may not be an after the crisis, but the goal is that we agree upon a plan to manage it and adapt it as we adapt to the continuous changes that the pandemic has created. Let's say in fact, the crisis is resolved. It's important to take time to reflect, starting with recognizing the success of what has been overcome, what responses, cognitive or behavioral to the crisis made things better or worse. Reflecting on the event is important for gaining mastery over the situation and for hopefully being able to cope in future scenarios. But I hope we don't have to cope with another pandemic, but 
I know that there can still be a lot to be learned with small crisis resolution during these times. I wanted to dedicate a good portion today on case consultation and discussion because of how unique the crises are right now. And just like our clients are experts of their own experience, you all working in direct practice currently have so much knowledge to be shared about what's working and what's not working. And hopefully we right now can create some dynamic discussion if you guys are open to that, um, on this slide, I just really love this quote from Mr. Rogers, anything that's human is mentionable and anything that is mentionable can be manageable. When we can talk about our feelings, they become less overwhelming, less upsetting and less scary. I just really have always liked to emphasize with clients that the moment we're able to talk about what's weighing us down, those feelings, those thoughts, they lose a little bit of their power. And I think that's really important for crisis intervention as well, is to remember that. So with that, I'm hoping we have some people that are open to sharing some things going on with their current practice. If you don't want to type it in the chat you could even try unmuting yourselves and talking as well to kind of create this discussion and hopefully some dynamic discourse okay well um before i we go into that i guess sarah just said once asked a client what he does to regulate and his reply was i'm not doing that deep breathing <laughs> uh stuff <laughs> and i i've had a lot of clients like that um uh that i can definitely understand that point of view and i would ask you sarah what uh was there anything you found that was helpful to him to regulate in those moments because doesn't sound like deep breathing was good never mind this is a great example of the need for sort of cultural considerations. I too have that had that experience of people who have maybe coped with sort of, oh, I don't know, um, not coped well and didn't, you know, maybe solely been using substances their entire life. And this felt like, like some hippie stuff that they weren't going to touch. Um, and that can feel so disconnecting if, if that's a sort of provider agenda that's, that's pushed or nudged, like, no, try it, no, try it. Um, so the workarounds, what, are, what your strategies are, uh, would be interesting to hear. Yeah. Yeah. I used to do, um, a yoga group with clients at the crisis house and we couldn't get yoga mats cause we didn't have the budget. And so it would be upper body yoga and I would just call it a stretching group. <laughs> so that was how I got a lot of different people to do it that were, people that you would never expect to participate. And so I would almost just try to do some stretches over the phone. You don't have to do breath work, but even just stretching, it was kind of amazing to see some people that you would never imagine finding it useful would come up to me and be like, I loved that. <laughs> it was this like these big tall men, like it was really great to see that something so simple as that can be helpful. So if I couldn't do breath work, I would try to do stretching because physical things were often 
easier to try to implement with people if they weren't open to outrightly discussing what was going on in their mind, what was going on in their thoughts, if they weren't open to that yet. And also just trying to figure out what they like. Um, A lot of my young clients like video games. So just building rapport about talking about video games, getting to know them. Sometimes it just takes time. It takes effort to see what can help them get through the moment. And sometimes it's just distracting with things like video games. Yeah. Trying all angles, Jean, that's, that's a great example too. Uh, A couple of great examples of moving from the brain to the body or moving to an activity or something that's engaging in a different way. I see you've got a couple, a couple of responses. Um, once is clients being concerned to be hospitalized and being exposed to coronavirus while receiving inpatient treatment? That's a valid concern. I don't know if that's a case you want to discuss. I think um, Daniel is mentioning a case. So let's see here. We've got one, a potential case or just maybe a comment. I'm not sure. Daniel, it looks like you've got a, a little case there. And Johanna, you have a question about how do you manage your anxiety while assisting clients while in crisis? So Let's see here. David has adjusted the Zoom setting so everyone should be able to unmute themselves if they would like to verbally share. Um, And you all know how this works. So if one person's talking, another person can't talk and we might have a couple like fits and starts with it. But uh, maybe we could encourage any of the three of you if you want to verbalize this and then we can have a discussion that way. Does that work? I I wasn't sure if I wanted to leave space for somebody, but I can can jump in. I, I, you know, I, I know this is, this is Daniel here. I know this is kind of like a basic motivational interviewing thing where you talk about, you know, rolling with resistance and that kind of stuff. But I, you know, I have this client who's immune compromised and, you know, he's, you know, I think he also does have, um, you know, uh, he's diagnosed bipolar and, and, you know, has like sort of hypochondriac sort of tendencies, which are, you know, kind of like hard to know what's valid or not during a time like this. But, you know, he'll say things to me like, you know, you know, I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm probably not going to get through this year. I've pretty much, you know, I've, I've kind of come to that conclusion, you know, that that's kind of my reality and, you know, and, and I'm, you know, when he says something like that, you know, I'm, there's a very strong urge of mine to just be like, well, you don't know that. And you're, you know, you're, you know, cause there is sort of like this sort of like wanting somebody to, you know, have more of like a fighter, sort of spirit or something like that in terms of getting through this. And so when, when he says like, oh yeah, I don't think I'm going to get through this year or, you know, I'm, you know, then I, I, you know, I kind of tend to respond with like, well, you know, you, I don't know if you know that. And like, you know, or, or like wanting to bring up like cases of people who with, you know, who have been in worse, um, you know, chances who have made it out and, and, you know, you know, kind of like wanting to kind of bring some positivity in there, but it, it's of course not received well, like he's usually responds with like, you know, I, I wish I could be as, um, you know, optimistic about everything as you are. And I wish I could be, and I was like, that's not what I'm, I'm not optimistic. I'm just, so, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. Um, like I said, I know it's like a motivational interviewing thing, but if you have any thoughts about, about, you know, responding or not to those sorts of you know, kind of intense um, assumptions that, about, you know, him dying and that kind of thing. So. I Thank you, Daniel. I think that's so Im- important to talk about. I guess I would 
try to focus more on the feelings that come up with when he says, I don't feel like I'm going to make it. I would focus more on like, how does helping him support with the emotions that brings up? Because if we, if we're overly positive, we're like, no, you'll be fine. Or, you know, we don't want to dismiss or be too annoyingly positive. Uh, positive. I've gotten that feedback, not saying that you are at all annoying to the client, but I have been very positive and that too has not always been the best case scenario. So I would, I've tried to, in those scenarios, more focus on the emotions of really trying to understand what's going on underneath. I don't feel like I'm going to survive and just empathizing like that has got to feel so overwhelming can we talk a little bit more about that? Is there anything I can do to support you when you're feeling like this Hmm. and more focusing on the emotions behind the statement than trying to like contradict the statement with, with positive good things, like Mm -hmm. your intentions are great, but I guess trying to dive deeper into the emotions Mm -hmm. might open more avenues. Okay. Got it. Um, Yeah. Thank you. So yeah, I guess the idea there being just to kind of like, open the door for more uh, um, just identification for what he's going through. Cause like, also I'm like, uh, does that, that in some ways feels like I'm going deeper into, into the pit of his, of his fear. And, um, you know, but, uh, but basically the idea, the goal there is to that, you know, the more he's able to um, explain what's happening, the, the less scary it gets kind of like the Rogers quote is that. That's, that's the goal. It can get too, too deep, but I guess, if if that is a concern too, maybe just starting with validating the emotions because I'm sure yeah. you've seen it from most people of like you're gonna be fine, it's gonna be okay, and then he just doesn't right. feel heard. So right, of course, that, if that's too much, even just validation yeah. and like I'm sure you've already done this, but like logical things like okay, what can we do to help you feel safe today? I know mm. you're hand washing. Can I get you like just some hand sanitizer? Will that help you feel a little safer today? Like practical mm. strategies for him to feel safe, even if he's not going to feel like he's going to get through the year. Let's just try to help you feel a little bit better. What can we do to do that? Yeah, I got you. I got you. So just kind of not not dismissing even if you feel like his claim is unrealistic not dismissing it uh, but just reflecting that feeling you know mm-hmm. being with that feeling and and just expressing concern and and that's sort of like you know you know what else can we do kind of a, you know yeah kind of seeing where what where he wants to go with it if at all you know yeah. I, and that validation can lead to a lot more things at, at least it has in my experience so i i hope that it's useful I see Morgan has a couple comments, I believe, in response to this discussion, um, mentioning I might ask what it feels like for him to think he won't stay through the year. That's a, a great way to explore in a super validating way um, that you, you know, you really want to understand sort of what what's sort of the, the, the intricacies of the anxiety or worry he's feeling. Um, how does he get through each day with that thought? Does it change how he lives his life? Um, yeah, thinking about what what coping skills is he using, what what strengths does he have, and that's that sort of moves you in a bit of more of a forward motion in tandem with the validation that can help not create a, a bind. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, and then let's see. 
I know that Juan talked about clients being concerned with hospitalization and exposed to coronavirus while getting in treatment. I'm that's such that's such a valid concern. Um, and I do think different hospitals are doing different things to try to minimize the spread and trying to do trace testing and socially distant, um, which you could try to relay in that way. But I also think that it's a valid concern for anyone in mental health, uh, like that doesn't have a mental health concern like that, even getting their physical health, if they have to go to the emergency room, that's a concern for someone as well. So really just trying to work through a plan for if that does happen, how can we try to help you feel safe through that? How can we support you? And maybe if there is a nurse on your team or someone in the medical field that can help ease their mind with any things they can do to feel a sense of control and that they're doing what they can to minimize the spread for themselves. Those are just some thoughts, but I know that it's an ongoing, evolving, very fluid situation. I believe, and I'm not totally sure on this, that hospitals uh, keep public data actually on the number of cases that are um, currently inpatient. Um, again, not totally sure on that, but for someone who responds well to information as a source of comfort, um, that might be an option to just check out what are the facts in the situation while also validating that this, it, the uncertainty levels are off the charts right now. And it's, it's, hard for, it's hard for you and me and everyone to sort of make sense of um, what is risk and what is not. Yeah. And Johanna, managing your anxiety while assisting clients in crisis is so, it is a job in itself. And I don't, I don't want to minimize it because it takes a lot of effort to do consistently. Um, I think um, for me, I like to use the serenity prayer, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. And when I get overwhelmed during this time, I say that to myself and take a deep breath and try to keep going. Um, it's kind of just finding little things to help you get through the day that center yourself, that ground yourself and things that make sure you remember you're not alone, that you have support when you're assisting clients well that are in crisis and you yourself have this anxiety. It's really trying to have a supportive team. When I worked in crisis houses and residential, I had such a great team of people that I could delegate to, that I could rely upon, that were there for each other. And that made the work so, so much more rewarding because I couldn't do it on my own. I could only do it with all the assistants and all of us working together to help our clients. So hopefully there's something that can help you get through the day and keep you in the great work that you're doing in direct practice right now. I see that Jacqueline talked about doing a lot of things over the phone, which is so great. Um, Mad Libs about quarantine, Skype groups and play videos, virtual museum tours, draw sketches, so great. We've been doing trivia. 
<laughs> we do meditation. So really trying to see how you can adapt your practice if your clients are able to access a phone or a video screen is so essential right now. And it sounds like Jacqueline, you've made the most of it. That's wonderful. Um, is there any other scenarios that people would like to discuss either by unmuting themselves or typing in whatever is most comfortable to you? We still have some time and we really want to make sure you guys have some additional support right now. Hi, Jean. I just wanted to jump in really quick, if that's okay. Yeah. I, uh, you mentioned this already and the video that you played is really, was really great and I think it's so important to, again, just recognize how much stress we are all going through and that what we're helping clients go through, there, there's going to be some commonality in that we are, you know, we're all in this crisis together. I remember when I was working in New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina, it was a very similar experience. And so that video certainly reminded me of that time, but we would be helping people through some of the very same circumstances that we as the helpers were also experiencing. So sometimes it can be really difficult to maintain those boundaries of, uh, you know, being able to uh, really kind of, say externalize a client's experience because you too are having something that is so similarly aligned so i think really my intent here is just to to validate that it can be incredible uh, it can be a little bit more difficult and that even grounding ourselves and being anxious when we are listening to somebody else's crisis can be uh it can be compounded it can be much more difficult to, to do that and i think remembering that they are we really need to be as calm as we could be in that moment. And that's one of the things that I loved about the video you shared and that the crisis response workers, they were so calm during those phone calls, even though they may have not had electricity or, or food or, or whatever else. I, I was so impressed with their ability to do that. And inside they might've been um, very much aroused, very uh, heightened, um, but on their exterior, they were able to be very deliberate with their calming presence. So it's clear that they most likely have a very strong support system outside. So then they could release some of that anxiety that they're experiencing. So thank you for allowing me to interrupt. No, no, no interruption. Uh oh. <laughs> no interruption whatsoever. Thank you. I'm so glad you found the video useful. I thought it does a great job because we are going through such a major event in the whole world right now that it's good to see that people have gone through things, not like a pandemic, but similar disasters and have had the strength and resilience to keep going. Um, and please feel free to continue to write in any questions or comments as we're nearing the end. I just want to make sure that um, you have our evaluation link, um, which David will type in. Here are some resources. NAMI has a great guide on navigating a crisis. There's also a free DBT skills workbook I found online that's pretty great. And then the Center for Clinical Interventions is an Australian website that has a plethora of free resources and workbooks for a variety of mental health concerns that is pretty great. And I recommend you to use if you're needing things to supplement your work right now while working remotely. I found them very useful. 
Um, and then here on the screen, you can also see um, how to type in the evaluation link because your feedback is so welcome and needed. It helps us determine what trainings we do next, what we focus on. Um, and we really, really appreciate you taking the time to be here today. Are there any other questions or comments? Um, I'm noticing, so just FYI, I think everyone knows you can't click on the, the yeah. PowerPoint that's coming up. Uh, you'll see in the chat, David's instructions, um, you can right click on that link there or just type in that bit.ly link, they'll go to the same thing. They're not two separate evaluations. Um, and then I am noticing a comment, a couple comments. Uh, Rosanna, you had mentioned a suggestion of doing your own deep breathing techniques while out while on the phone call. Yep, things you can do at the same time. The beauty of being on the phone is you can you you can make whatever face you want. You can you know squeeze something in your hand repeatedly if that's what's going to calm you down. Uh, you can spin in your chair, fidget. You can sit perfectly still because um, you're not having to use those sort of uh, physical behavioral cues to show you're listening. Um, also, using the slogan one day at a time, you know, using 24 hours a day to find solutions. Um, Christina, you mentioned validation is so important for the clients, hearing that they are not the only ones feeling anxious or knowing the unknown has to be a relief. Um, knowing that we are all using techniques. Yeah, David, thank you so much for sharing that and bringing your experience and relating it to the, to the video. That's, um, it's so, so true. Uh, getting some space between calls maybe so you can recover. Yeah, I remember an old professor of mine suggesting just find a place to rest in the middle of the storm. You can just wherever that is, just finding a spot to rest for a minute and center. Um, and also on the media page that we uh, posted a link to where you can find Jean's slides and where a recording from this training will eventually live. If you scroll down, we did a, a few provider well-being and self-care trainings at the beginning of quarantine, basically, back in sort of late March. Um, those, if you're needing some extra boost in how to take care of yourself and manage uh, your experience of being a provider during this time, those might be helpful.